The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Father, we're thankful to be able to gather together to consider your word, to think about this topic in uh, a biblical way, something that, is, uh, that meets us in various ways and at various times. We desire to count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds, uh, not because of the things themselves, but because of who you are, what you accomplish in and through them, how you draw us nearer to yourself and make us more like Christ through them, and ultimately because you glorify yourself in the world that you providentially rule over, which includes our suffering. And so we pray uh, for the attitude and mind of Christ to abound in us, that we would be humble, peaceable, gentle, long-suffering, patient with what you bring to us, that we might grow in our love and affections for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so again, um, there are packets by the door. I think at some point maybe you'll have the words on the screen. Um, if you are a, a fill-in-the-blank type person, uh, which, which I am, so I hope that will be helpful to you. Uh, a review of the last couple of weeks. We, to go back, I think maybe about three weeks ago, we talked about um, unbiblical responses, sinful responses to suffering, guarding against that by making use of the means of grace that God supplies to us, and then encouraging one another, helping one another as we face trials of various kinds. And we said... Uh, hopefully unsurprisingly, that believers can encourage one another in suffering with Scripture, prayer, hospitality, and their presence. And so we talked a lot about ministering to one another in the midst of difficulties and suffering. And then last week, uh, we talked a lot about ministry to especially people outside of the family of faith and relieving physical suffering. So how, how do we think about relieving physical suffering, whether it's poverty, whether it's the person who, you know, asks you for spare change coming out of the grocery store, or earthquake victims on the other side of the world. How do we think about relieving physical suffering? And the way we began to answer that question last week was, we said that relieving physical suffering requires believers to maintain a posture of love towards all people as they consider the moral proximity to the need and the priority of the need. And so if you weren't here last week, or just as a quick refresher, we define moral proximity in terms of kind of a circles that get wider as they get farther from you. So your kind of closest tight-knit circle of moral proximity would be your family, your church family, and then getting further out into your, uh, your community, and ultimately people to whom you've um, you know, never, never met. And Family, church, Christians, world is kind of the way that we, we looked at that. Uh, we had to kind of speed up at the end last week uh, when we were talking about the priority of the, of the need. And uh, this is not in your packet for fill in the blank, but this is where last week would have ended, and I don't think we actually got that far. Um, the, what last week should have ended with was, love calls us to care for the physical suffering of others but to not forget that the eternal is more important than the temporal. So what I tried to do last week was help us not to divide between whether we choose to 
preach the gospel or we choose to address social and physical needs. And we saw, or at least I, I, I tried to demonstrate the kind of tendency to let the pendulum swing one way or the other. And so you have some, I think, probably in the conservative evangelical camp with sort of a sideways glance towards, you know, social justice warriors where, you know, we're over here wanting to defend the gospel and sound doctrine and y'all just want to provide clean drinking water. And I think you've got people on the other side who would kind of give a sideways glance and go, well, y'all are, all you want to do is preach the gospel, but you don't want to actually help people's physical needs. And I don't think we need to draw a wedge between those two. And we looked at the, uh, the instructions that the apostles in Jerusalem had given to Paul as he was going out, and they encouraged him not to forget the poor. And so as Paul, and he said that was the very thing that I was eager to do, was to remember the poor. And so it seems that those two things are meant to go hand in hand. That as we preach the gospel, we also seek to serve people's physical needs. As a sign of God's advancing kingdom, you see His grace and mercy and compassion meet people. That does not mean that relieving physical suffering is the gospel, but it also means that we shouldn't neglect the poor and the hurting as we go. So while the eternal is more important than the temporal, it doesn't mean the temporal is not important, that we shouldn't think about ways to serve temporal needs, even as a means of having access to preach the gospel. So moral proximity and the priority of the need is what we talked about last week. Today, we're focusing on how suffering serves God's purpose of making His glory known. And um, this kind of goes back to probably our very first uh, building block. We talked about what motivates God. What is at the heart of God's desires? And I think the, the testimony of Scripture is that what primarily motivates God is His own glory. And in terms of His relationship with creation, it is the praise of His glory. If there is a greater goal in existence than the glory of God, then something else must be God. And so it is right and good for God to glorify Himself and for us to praise His glory. So that should be our ultimate desire, to praise the glory of His grace, uh, as you see in Ephesians 1. And I think if we have that in mind, a God-centered worldview that says the glory of God is to be desired, then that will help us to encounter suffering in a better way. Because if suffering brings about God's glory, then we can rejoice when we face trials of various kinds because we're seeing God's good purposes and ultimately His glory as what He means to accomplish in and through that. Does that make sense? I feel like that's a kind of a heady way to start this, but are we feeling okay about sort of the, the position we're starting from? If the glory of God is utmost in His purposes, and therefore it ought to be in the purposes and minds and hearts of His people, and that will change the way that we interact with everything, particularly for our purposes, suffering. If he can and will and means to glorify himself through suffering, that changes my attitude towards it if my goal is not my comfort, but his glory. Okay, so on to your packet. It seems that in the story of Scripture, we see more glory in redemption than in creation. If you think about the narrative of Scripture and the powerful works of God demonstrated in the lives of His people, you see how 
he glorifies himself in circumstances that from a human perspective seem hopeless, where there is rescue, where there is redemption. Think about Joseph being sold into slavery. That's a desperate situation. His brothers are arguing over whether or not to kill him. They end up selling him into slavery. Uh, he ends up you know, unjustly accused of unrighteousness. And God brings about not only his deliverance, but the deliverance of all of his people from famine through what happens to Joseph. And you remember what Joseph told his brothers? You meant this for evil. God meant it for good. So the, the humiliation and exaltation of Joseph serves to glorify God as his redemption, as his rescue is manifest. Joseph is a, is a great example. Um, think about the Israelites in the Exodus with their backs against the wall and you got, you know, sea behind, Egyptians in front, and what does God do? He parts the waters and they, they cross on dry ground. The, the redemption there glorifies God as the people are backed into a corner and to a situation where only the Lord could deliver them. Think about Naomi and Ruth. They go to Moab. Her life and her family is decimated. They come back into Israel poor. And what does the Lord do? He provides the kinsman redeemer in Boaz. And not only does he save Naomi and Ruth from that, but David is born into their family. And so the king of Israel comes about through the redeeming work that God did in the lives of Ruth and Naomi. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or what, what does Michael always call them? Y'all, that's VeggieTales. Uh, my shack, your shack, and a bungalow, I think is what Michael says. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, refuse to worship the idol. They're thrown into the furnace, and the Lord rescues them miraculously. Probably the best example would be Christ Himself. Crucified, buried, raised. God is glorified as a Redeemer. You see in Scripture the redeeming power of God. If you apply that then to your own suffering, our goal then as believers shouldn't simply be to survive suffering, just to gut it out and get through it, but to actually grow in our love for the Lord and then point to His excellence. So we should want our joy in the Lord to grow through the trials, and we should want that to produce others glorifying the Lord and enjoying Him as well. We don't want to just survive. We want to actually have an open eye and heart towards what God is doing. <clears throat> All right, how does suffering proclaim the gospel? One way suffering proclaims the gospel is by changing our circumstances. If you flip onto your verse packet, Acts 1.8 and 8.1 are listed there for you. Jesus is talking to the apostles and says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Acts 1.8 is um, sort of the uh, 
thematic center, I guess you could say, of the book of Acts. It's describing what happens in the book of Acts. The gospel is going to be proclaimed by the witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So it starts there in Jerusalem at the beginning of Acts, and by the end of Acts, Paul is in prison in Rome and the gospel is being proclaimed there. Um, so Acts, Acts 1.8 is telling you what is going to happen within the ministry of the early church and the apostles in that book. But then look at Acts 8.1. How is it that God begins to accomplish this? And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So in 1.8, Jesus tells them, "...you will be my witnesses." Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And you get midway through the book, and what is it that drives them from Jerusalem into the surrounding areas? It wasn't a church meeting where they decided to appoint some missionaries to go. It was intensified persecution of the church, and they begin to scatter, and they take the gospel with them as they go. So God used suffering to accomplish the spread of the gospel by moving His people into the surrounding regions. In our lives, there may be different examples of how trials and suffering move us into new places. Um, in our context right now, I don't know um, how much we, we see that. Certainly not to the same extent that our brothers and sisters around the world are facing now, and not in the same way that the early church was. But that's not to say that there is not harassment and opposition to Christians in the United States, and I think that's only intensifying. Um, but if you can detach yourself from the idea that like the government is coming knocking on your door looking to arrest you, think about how uh, suffering of various kinds might create opportunities for you to have new relationships, um, to meet people you wouldn't otherwise meet. Um, does anybody have any experience with that, where suffering of a particular kind changed your circumstances where... You were moved to a new place, new relationship, new job, new... Any examples of that? So suffering can change your circumstances. Suffering can also make others bold. By making others bold. Philippians 1.14 says, Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I think that kind of gets to what Timothy was saying. If this were a, just a fill-in-the-blank Bible, and most of the brothers having become blank in the Lord by my imprisonment, okay, period, stop there. Is confident the word you would supply? With worldly wisdom, I don't think confident is what I would write in there. I think it's actually the opposite of that that I would probably anticipate. Having become fearful, having become anxious, having become, you know, whatever... But as the believers saw Paul's imprisonment and saw his faithfulness to the Lord, even the advance of the gospel, not despite his imprisonment, but by means of it, as the gospel is going out even among the guard, it emboldened other believers to speak the word without fear. So Paul's faithfulness and perseverance while suffering emboldened people to share the gospel and to preach the word. Another way that suffering proclaims the gospel is by showcasing the hope of the gospel. 
Look at 1 Peter 3, 14-17. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So, a life that's well lived, especially while suffering, is likely going to provoke questions from the people who know us. And we need to be ready to answer them with the hope of the gospel. So, Today, I meant to be a little more uh, interactive than usual. Do y'all, we talked about suffering changing your circumstances. Any examples of suffering prompting questions from people who know you? How is it that you're going through this with such hope and joy? Any examples of that in your own life? Um. That's exactly what we're talking about. And I think one of the things that, uh, that Matthew said that I think is, is really worth mentioning is because especially physical disabilities and limitations, because they are not particular to Christians, but because you see that commonly in the world, you can see a, a huge difference between how the people of God think about those physical things that are part of living in a fallen world and unbelievers. What I see like commonly is for, for people with, with physical disabilities who, whose hope is not in the Lord is to basically have the attitude that I'll just prove everybody wrong. And so the, the attitude is I'm going to glorify myself and show you what I can do in the midst of this. Whereas the attitude that Matthew expresses is I'm going to tell you about the goodness of God the power of God, the redeeming power of the gospel, the fact that my hope is not in my physical body now, but in the glorification that I have in and with the Lord to come. So our attitude then, again, if it's not starting with the glory of God, the starting place is going to ter- determine where you end up. And if, if our commitment is to the exaltation of Jesus and His gospel, that will give us that kind of attitude in any sort of suffering, whether it's physical or otherwise. Suffering showcases the hope of the gospel. Um, and Lord willing, it will provoke questions from people who, who know us. How is it that you can have this diagnosis and be filled with such joy? We had a wonderful visit with Donna Hawkins last week. Uh, if you don't know Donna, um, her health has been declining as she battles cancer. We don't know how much longer she will be with us. And the three elders sat down with her in her living room, and she was the most joyful of all four of us. It just was astounding that just to hear her give thanks to the Lord in the midst of such trials as her pain increases, and just to be thankful um, was just... Uh, astonishing. And so it's good for us, certainly when we think about our relationships with unbelievers, for that light to shine. 
it's also, I think, not worth uh, underestimating how powerful that is as a witness and an encouragement to one another. So suffering showcases the hope of the gospel. Think about Paul's thorn in the flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. And the answer he gets is not the removal of the thorn, but the truth from the Lord that His power is made perfect in your weakness. If our commitment is not to that, then that's going to change everything. And like what that reminds me of, Timothy, is that's going to change our prayers. If our prayers only ever stop at the relief for the suffering, then we're missing the bigger picture of what God intends to do. He may very well be pleased to glorify Himself through relieving, through healing. He may also choose to glorify Himself through leaving you in a state of weakness and saying, this is going to showcase my power and glory through, through your weakness. Um, yeah, absolutely. The, the, the word in your last blank was showcasing the hope of the gospel. Hope is forward-looking. It's saying that what I am anticipating in and with Christ for all eternity is better than anything I could have now, including the relief of all of my physical suffering. Because it will include that and so much more. Lastly, in this section, it proclaims the gospel by displaying the value of knowing Christ. Philippians 3.8 Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I think there's something, uh, that at least that reminds me of anyway, the treasure hidden in the field um, in this passage. The idea there is that the kingdom of God is like the treasure hidden in the field and man discovers it and in his joy he goes and sells everything he has so he can buy the field and have the treasure. Paul thinks about his life and puts everything in the balance of that and knowing Christ. And everything is worthless, rubbish, loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. I found this quote helpful. God isn't glorified when we choose Him for His gifts. God is glorified when we choose Him as what... God is glorified when we choose Him as what is truly valuable over and above everything else. When we lose what this world values and yet don't lose heart, it tells them that we have grabbed hold of something far more valuable than they ever imagined. And that commends the gospel. So suffering displays the value of knowing Christ. When those comforts and physical well-being, whatever it is, when those things are stripped away, when God's people are found in Christ enjoying Him, it shows the value, the supreme value of knowing Him. All right. What is our role? So when we think about our role in suffering for the glory of God, here's some who's, what's, and how's. Let's consider first who we should talk to. This is hopefully obvious, but 
whatever opportunities and relationships we have, whether it's with unbelievers or believers, consider how we might talk to them about our suffering and our testimony of the Lord's faithfulness in the midst of it. The Lord may be pleased to use that in our suffering to greatly impact people for the gospel. Again, if your circumstances or relationships are changed, whether it's a stranger you meet at the doctor's office or, or whatever, God brings people into our path for His own glory. So we can think about our testimony in the midst of suffering to the people that God brings our way. Think about what to talk about. We should be honest about our suffering and struggles, especially with people who who know us well. We talked about this several weeks ago, about the, the pitfalls of the I'm fine Christianity. But we want to be careful to remember the difference between describing what's going on and grumbling or complaining about what's going on. So we can walk the line between being honest and open about the things that we're struggling with, the things that are going on, but we want to guard against grumbling. And I think the difference between those two is our heart attitude. My purpose for talking about this is sharing with a brother or sister, seeking their comfort, seeking their counsel, ultimately wanting the Lord to be glorified. That's good and right. So we should talk to believers and unbelievers in much the same way. We should talk about the gospel. We should talk about the Lord's faithfulness and goodness. We should talk about our hope, like Matthew pointed out. Use our suffering to say true things about God and the world that He has made and our hope in Him. And then consider how to live. We should live with honorable conduct. 1 Peter 2.12. I'm going to read just the whole thing from 1 Peter 2.12-15 because I think I'm going to come back to it in a minute. Specifically, verse 12 is what we're considering now. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Honorable conduct. Among all people, especially in this context, among unbelievers. Um... In the same passage, we see that that includes submission to God-given authorities. Insofar as the government is not compelling us to sin, we should submit to the government. In our case, we live in a society where we actually have unprecedented say in our government. That's one thing that we can exercise out of love for neighbor and for the glory of the Lord to seek to be governed by people of integrity, people who know the Lord, who would execute His desires. Not always what we get, but we can work and pray towards that end. Go ahead, Timothy. Uh, so the, the where is worth asking. It's very broad. One of the challenges about the where is 
you know, if you're talking about the difference between the two express checkout lines or whether or not you ought to be a vocational missionary in Africa or get a master's degree and live in a big city, like, Second Thessalonians doesn't have an answer to that, right? It says, the will of God is your sanctification. And so, let's go back to where we started at the beginning of this. If my primary motivation is the pursuit of the glory of God, then that needs to be at the root of what I'm asking about the wares. Why is it that I would want to go to Atlanta or Birmingham or Senegal or Iran? Certainly, I need to pray and ask the Lord for wisdom and help and direction. He may bring people and relationships and skills and talents and desires into my life to help me sort through some of those things. But you could be a vocational missionary for all the wrong reasons, right? You could do good things and it not be because it, you were motivated by the glory of God. And so these get back to, I think, heart-level questions about why we do what we do. And I think there is wonderful grace and freedom in Christ for looking at a situation with eyes that have been opened by the Spirit of God for us to genuinely pray and ask, Lord, what is glorifying to you in this? Recognizing that I am a person comprised of relationships, skills, education, family, all sorts of opportunities. I mean, I was born into a, a military family. I, I traveled all over the world, and here I ended up in, in Tuscaloosa. That, those things are particular to my story. We all have different things that are part of God's providence in our lives. And so I think that frees us, at least in the where part, from looking at those two or maybe 20 paths and going, one of these is right, the rest of them are wrong, and if I choose the wrong one, my faith is shipwrecked and I have destroyed my life. That's not how the providence of God works. But we should be asking ourselves, what is, what is most glorifying to the Lord in this? Where is that consistent with in his providence, what he has gifted me with and given me the desires for and equipped me for. Um, I think there's great freedom in, in the wares. But it's good and right, like you said, whether it's Tuscaloosa versus Africa or Checkout Line versus Checkout 2, to have a mind, a prayerful mind, of what opportunities the Lord is providentially bringing, bringing my way and not wasting those things. Yeah. And then as those paths intersect, go back to the very first thing we said, keeping our conduct honorable. We want to give a testimony to the glory and truth of the gospel and our manner of life, Lord willing, will contribute to that. But that's a perfect example because that is just like the everyday Christian life. We can get hung up, I think, on like the really big things, but... If you can't treat the person at the grocery store with kindness, like that's just like Christianity 101, right? That, that is the everyday Christian life of honorable conduct for the glory of God. So we want to conduct ourselves honorably. We want to submit to God-given authorities. We want to trust in the Lord's justice. Look at 1 Peter 2, 21, and 23, 21 to 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Don't miss in 1 Peter what he says there, that you might follow in his steps. 
the gospel is not primarily one of Jesus being our example. It is primarily of Jesus being our substitute. He atones for our guilt. He atones for our sin. He absorbs the wrath of God in our place so that in Him we become the righteousness of God. That is true. That is central to the gospel. But it is also true that He has left us an example so that we might follow in His steps. What does Peter say is part of that example? He wasn't deceitful. He wasn't sinful. He didn't return reviling for reviling. I need to remember that one in traffic. Again, this is basic basic 101 following Jesus. He didn't threaten when suffered, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. So, Following the example of Jesus, we trust in the Lord's justice. Because not all the situations at the store end up like that. Sometimes they end up with you being taken advantage of. Sometimes they end up with you being wronged. Sometimes they end up with you being deceived. What's our attitude? Is it pursuing vengeance? Is it reviling? Trust in the Lord's justice. We seek to do so with a clear conscience. This goes back to the 1 Peter 2, excuse me, 1 Peter 3 passage. We want to be careful to be above reproach, to live repentantly, to not cut corners with our integrity, which I think in a worldly sense can become easier when we are suffering. I think it's easier to make excuses for sin if we have some sort of trial or difficulty or suffering going on. From a very silly example, my kids will relate to this. They've probably heard me apologize on more than one occasion for what I did when I was hungry. You been there? If I hadn't had enough to eat or gotten enough sleep, the chances of my fuse being shorter are 100%. It's a very minor, relatively silly example. But it's easy to cut corners, or easier, I should say, to cut corners with our integrity when we're suffering. We want to be careful not to let suffering become an excuse for any sin. As we close, um, any other comments or questions, stories of the Lord's faithfulness, opportunities you've had through your suffering, or things that you've um, witnessed, been encouraged by? Well, I hope, you know, we've got a few more weeks in this block. Uh, I hope that as we near the end of it, those sorts of things will be on your mind more, and you'll think about your own suffering, the suffering of other people, and perhaps, um, if you've needed a different lens to look through, I hope this block has helped provide that, that we want to think about suffering not as uh, something to be despised, but something to be embraced, not for its own sake, but for the sake of the glory of God and the good things that He is doing uh, in and through them. Go ahead, Timothy. All of those things that expose our weakness and dependence on God, the road that I think that we want to be driving down is the one that says, Lord, show Yourself powerful and gracious in this, whatever that means. And that's, that can be a very hard thing to be committed to. Um, but I think that's the right thing to be committed to, is Lord, you show yourself powerful, you show yourself strong. 
whatever the cost, because you're worth it. The treasure in the field is worth giving up all I could have to, to gain hold of. All right, let's pray. Father, we are thankful for you. Even as we talked about today, we want to see you, what you have done for us in and through Jesus as of supreme value, and that being conformed into his image in your providence will not be despite suffering, but in and through it. You are full of steadfast love and faithfulness. You do not bring these things in the lives of your children to harm them, but for our good and for your glory. And that is the attitude that we want to have. We want to see your power made perfect in our weakness, recognizing that the world that we live in now, the frailties, the sins, the suffering that we experience now, all of these things pale by comparison to the glory that will be revealed to us. But we pray for that gospel hope to anchor our souls. May that be the lens through which we see our suffering. May that propel us into ministry to our neighbors. May that be our song, that you are praiseworthy, you are our treasure, you are our hope, and there is nothing else that we would desire above you. We love you because you have first loved us, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.